<laughs> Amen. Let me, uh, by way of introduction, and uh, there we go, and uh, let me introduce the series to you. We have three sermons uh, this Sunday night and the next two Sunday nights on Daniel, and um, hopefully my sister Janet will take the time to listen to the other two. She told me, and I'd forgotten this, that she was here for the first of my Samson series, but I don't think she's listened to the rest of the Samson series. Uh, the good news is for that is they kind of did stand on their own. They were interrelated, but they did stand on their own. If you don't listen to the next two, you're going to think this is the dumbest series you've ever heard because this is almost, tonight is almost a preamble to the meat of the series. I've titled it a series on faith and restoration. Now, most of you are going to be able to connect immediately, and tonight is about and will be very obvious about the faith of Daniel. But the idea of the restoration, you're going to have to stay tuned. And I'm going to be very disciplined not to let the cat out of the bag, so to speak. And so each of these three sermons are very, very important and do build on one another. This is a series that is cumulative in its effect. In other words, probably, in my opinion, the most powerful moment will come in the final sermon not next Sunday night, but the one following. And so I encourage you to make yourself available to this. I did not design the series to hook you in and say you got to come three Sunday nights. That's not the point. I hope you're coming on Sunday night anyway. But this is a cumulative series. And so if for some reason, like my sister Janet, who will be in Austin, Texas, as opposed to here, do take advantage of either YouTube where we put up the videos of the, of the service or uh, our podcast through iTunes or simply going to the website and streaming it from there. Do take advantage of that because you do not want to miss the cumulative this. I have been sitting on this series for quite some time and I'm very excited that I feel finally released in the Lord to share it with you. I also need to, and I'm going to say this in each of the sermons because it, part of my ethics is to be very clear to give honor to whom honor is due. The Word of God is God's. I don't own it. You don't own it. Other preachers don't own it. At the same time, though, all of us are impacted and influenced by other people, their thoughts, and so on. And some of you may remember my good friend, Brother Joey Payton, who uh, actually teaches and is involved with Urshan Graduate School, lives in St. Louis, pastored in Alaska, also pastored in Maine, and uh, by fluke of time and chance was actually uh, a student of mine uh, Brother Peyton really lies at the core of the genesis of this series, and so I give him honor. I have taken it and, and shaped it and brought it to uh, a different place than where he is at, but I give honor to Brother Peyton, and I look forward to uh, being able to say so in the future when he's back visiting with us as well. But you need to know that there is a kernel, if you will, in what I bring to you over these next three Sunday nights that comes from some conversations uh, with him. Uh, and some thoughts that I had never thought of until he began to prod my thinking. Um, tonight we're going to uh, begin with the book of Daniel and begin with chapter 1. And tonight's sermon is exclusively in chapter 1. And so if you would turn there or simply watch the screen behind me in AV in case I didn't get that info to you. Whenever I'm not actively reading a verse, uh, put up this screen in between. That way that we have that visual in between verses if I pause or at the end. We're told, uh, first of all, the, the way that the book of Daniel is presented to us is um, there's information within the book of Daniel that really looks to us like Daniel wrote it. It is not written in first person. It is not I this, I that. But it, is, it does certainly look like Daniel wrote this book. Uh, because there's information that, that really represents things that only he would have known about. And so you need to know that that's kind of my working assumption, that Daniel wrote this. It is an assumption because I can't prove it. However, I do think it is a very reasonable and probable assumption. All right? We're told, and, and, and Daniel launches into this story uh, by tapping into, and if you want to study more about this and read more about this, you can go uh, and read in both Kings and also Chronicles. He, he introduces us to 
the beginning of his story at the end of Judah's story. Israel has already been brought under bondage, in fact, to the Assyrian Empire. For those of you that are interested in my graphic, that, that winged beast with the face and the head of a man is actually from the, the, the uh, time period of the Assyrians, but it represents the kind of winged um, beasts with the face of a man that we find throughout the Mesopotamian world known as the Fertile Crescent and would have been representative of not only of the Assyrian Empire but also the Babylonian Empire and also uh, the Medes and the Persians. You would see these kinds of statues, these kind of images, massive images uh, as you would enter into these capital cities of Babylonia or of Susa, the, the fortress capital of the Medes and the Persians. And, um, and so... Assyria has already conquered Israel, the northern ten tribes of Israel. They have already, hundred years or so before, have already been brought under the domination. But Judah, because it had some good kings, because it had some righteous kings, experienced some brief periods, brief in the large picture of things, some brief periods of mercy from the Almighty. And so their, their time of being brought into bondage has been extended. In other words, it has, it has taken longer for God to finally empower a, a pagan king, if you will, to come in and to conquer them. Daniel begins his story at the end where finally Judah has reached the point where God is no longer extending mercy. His northern ten tribes of people have been put under the uh, control of the Assyrians and now the southern two and a half tribes, if you will, have now been brought under that same domination. We're told in verse 1, During the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted Nebuchadnezzar to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in the treasure house of his God. And the reason that, the, that, that I believe Daniel starts with this is not only to historically tag the time period in which this story begins, in which he is relating to us, but also to set the context. This is a context in which things are not going well. There is nothing but destruction. There is nothing but degradation. Jeremiah's words that he has brought forth over and over and over again are now vindicated. All the times that Jeremiah spent within the well and that he spent in house arrest and that he spent with the king re reviling him are now gone. The commander has been sent from Nebuchadnezzar to find Jeremiah and to tell him, where do you want to live? What do you want to do? All the while, the soldiers are roaming the streets of Jerusalem, sacking the houses, destroying and burning everything that would burn, pushing down into rubble the stone structures, carting away, killing those who matter not, and carting away those who are important. Only Jeremiah receives courtesy. Only Jeremiah receives respect. This is not a time where faith is easy. This is not a time when believing in Jehovah comes naturally. And so Daniel tells us that in this time of destruction, in this time of the king being taken captive, and you can read how his eyes are poked out, his sons are killed in his presence, and then his eyes are poked out. The last thing he sees is his sons being slaughtered. And then his eyesight is taken from him. The last images to flash before the king's eyes in his mental images are his sons being slaughtered. This is a horrible time period. He even tells us, Daniel tells us, that the, that the precious things of the temple that Solomon and David had collected and, and, and created and dedicated unto the Lord are now taken and put within the house of Nebuchadnezzar's gods. This is a horrible time. This is not an opportune environment for faith. 
And so Daniel tells us that in verse 3, he says, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace. So we've jumped from the, the, the whole destruction of Jerusalem, and you're going to see there's an assumption that the travel has occurred, that people have been taken, the sorting out of who's going to be killed, who's going to be left. And who's going to be taken to Babylon has occurred. And so the king orders back in Babylon, Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. So the king transports back to Babylon his prize of people. The poor, the illiterate, if they hadn't been slaughtered, they were left to simply fend in a totally destroyed land. It would take them years to rebuild their buildings, reclaim their fields that had been destroyed by the Babylonian soldiers, to replant crops. It would be meager. The economy that would be agrarian was destroyed. There were no markets to sell your goods in. There were no people to really sell your goods to. It was a bad time. But Nebuchadnezzar had chosen, as was the custom of that day, to pick out the elect. He would kill the leaders, but then he would take the young. He would take those that he could dominate with his presence and with his power, but had some intellect and had some, and had some training, some education, and he would take them back, and he would make them constant reminders of his prowess so that when everyone would enter into his court, they would see these specimens from all of the various lands that he had conquered. And so he orders his chief of staff, whose name is Ashpenaz, to select, verse 4, only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men. Make sure they are well-versed in every branch of learning, are gifted with knowledge and good judgment, and are suited to serve in the royal palace. And then add to all this training that they already have, train these young men then in the language and the literature of Babylon. So these were young men who were already trained. These were people who already were educated. This is not an education they received. This is an education they already had. And we can see from the ancient world this happening over and over and over again. The Romans, for example, an area that I have some expert knowledge of because of the years of study, the Romans would do that. They, they, they degraded the Greeks, but the Greeks were the ones who tutored their children. They would take those educated people and they would bring them into their homes. And, and there they were slaves, but they were, they were servants to carry out based upon their education and their knowledge, their knowledge of literature, their knowledge of, as Nebuchadnezzar puts it, every branch of learning. So give them language training. Teach them our culture and our literature so that they can now serve the king. Verse 5, the scriptures tell us, Daniel tells us, that the king then assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens. The actual language here, the NLT obscures it. It's, from, it's, a, it's a language that is used from the king's table. This was a privilege. This meant it came from the king himself. He guaranteed the food that was going to be provided. It literally came out of his kitchens, as this translation says. They were to be trained in this language and this literature for three years, and then they would enter the royal service. It is not that their lives were horrible in the royal service, but their lives were completely at the pleasure of the king. They lived, they breathed, and they ate, and they worked according to the parameters of the king. So you can imagine, guys, if you'll put up that image uh, real quick for me in my title slide. So you can imagine approaching a massive city walls. Jerusalem is an impressive city, but nothing like Babylon. And so images like this, standing there at the gates, being marched in beneath that. Babylon is known, and Nebuchadnezzar is reputed to have built for one of his wives the, the, the beautiful hanging gardens 
of Babylon. This was not, this, this, this was akin to, to moving from, and forgive me, Reg, for doing this, but this is what comes to mind. This is akin to moving from Tulsa, Oklahoma, with its skyline, to New York City. Tulsa's no mean city, half a million people. Along with Oklahoma City, it's, it's the place, it's, 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 it's a very important city. It's a very influential city within Oklahoma. But when you stack it up against New York City, it looks, let's just be frank, pathetic. So all that we can think of Jerusalem, and remember the last images that Daniel has seen of Jerusalem is of fire of walls tumbling, of soldiers entering into the Holy of Holies and walking out with the sacred objects, of people being gutted and destroyed, and him in chains, tied, marching out. We don't know what Daniel thought of Jeremiah. We don't know where he was. We Ostensibly, he could have, as a young man, been as young as perhaps 13 or 14 years of age because, of course, manhood within the Jewish tradition is at 13. So we don't know what he thought of Jeremiah, but Jeremiah's words have come to pass. Jerusalem has been destroyed. The power that Daniel would have had access to, and it's not clear whether he was in fact royalty or rather just of nobility, but Daniel had access. Daniel had probably been in the king's court. Daniel had probably rubbed shoulders with princes. He was definitely educated and had access to the learning of Jerusalem. But as he marched in through those gates and as they ushered him into the king's palace and they put him into quarters that the king owned and, and, the, and the fare was brought from the king's table, Daniel was in a totally different world. He was in a world that was strange to him. He was in a world that was overwhelming to him. And he knew that he would never own himself again. One of the assumptions, it is an assumption, but one of the assumptions is, is that these young men would have in fact been emasculated. They would have been turned into eunuchs because the king would not want them to have the freedom to marry and to have the privileges of marriage. And so they would have had their manhood removed whether that manhood was simply the removing of the testes or whether in fact it was a complete emasculation is up to debate. Depended upon what the king wanted to say, what kind of statement he wanted to make to them. Again, I cannot prove that to you, but that practice is without question present within what would happen. So imagine it, a young man, educated, used to privilege and comfort, if you will, of his society. Marching in through the daunting, overwhelming massiveness of this empire. And while Babylonia in comparison to Rome, or even in comparison to the Medes and the Persians, or the short-lived empire of Alexander the Great was not as large in landmass, its glory, Daniel tells us later from a dream, was a glory that was unparalleled. He had the gold head. So imagine Daniel walking into this, receiving the treatment. On the one hand, cared for, but on the other hand, perhaps, probably losing his manhood. I can only imagine what that would do to a human being. And ladies, this is one area you don't understand. You can mentally grasp it, but every man in this place is instinctively keeping their hands where they are and not heading down to protectively guard. Overwhelmed by the massiveness of a civilization, experiencing the pain and the loss of perhaps family members that have died, who fought, knowing their king has been destroyed, their kingdom is gone. Perhaps if Daniel was a believer, the sinking feeling that Yahweh had, in fact, judged them. Yahweh had, in fact, turned his back on them. 
that the king had actually been sent by Yahweh, as Jeremiah had said, to destroy. When God empowers a king to destroy his own house, things are not good. Things are not good at all. And then to be emasculated and to be dominated, to be placed in this circumstance. I, I need you to understand, I need you to recognize, I need you to feel that Daniel is not in an environment of faith. Daniel's in an environment of despair. Daniel's in an environment of being overwhelmed. Daniel is in a place of absolute overwhelm and pressed downness. Verse 6, Daniel tells us that Daniel... Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen, all from the tribe of Judah. And then as if their emasculation isn't enough, marching through those gates isn't enough, moving from Tulsa to New York isn't enough. Again, forgive me, dear. But it really is accurate. My wife lived in Tulsa, and she has been to New York and has fallen in love with New York. If we weren't called to this area, we'd move to New York. It's pretty funny, given where she's coming from. Then they lose their names. We're told in verse 7, the chief of staff renamed them with these Babylonian names. Daniel was called Belteshazzar. And, and please understand that despite Daniel's resilience to continue to call himself in this book by the name Daniel, his captors did not call him Daniel. He answered to this name every single day of the rest of his life. Hananiah was called Shadrach, Mishael was called Meshach, and Azariah was called Abednego. It is interesting to us that Daniel does call them by their Babylonian names subsequently, and that's how most of us know. And I've always prided myself on the fact that I have been able to remember their Hebrew names. That's one of those Bible trivia things that will serve you well if you're ever playing Bible trivia. What is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's Hebrew names? They lost their names. They lost their identity. Remember back, see, we, we, we get names for goofy reasons. Marcus has a middle name, Levi, for one reason and one reason alone. We were thinking of naming him Levi, and Ben Cohen decided to nail him a lot of college applications with the name Levi on it. Don't, Ben was just weird. Well, let me rephrase that. Ben is just weird, is just weird. So... He was at the time of going to college, and you know how it is. You get all these applications, and then inside or a card, refer somebody. So he did that. He did that with the Marines, too. They were not amused when they called and asked to speak to Vincent Beardsley, and I informed them that Vincent Beardsley was only four years old. The Marine recruiter was not pleased. But Regina and I saw so much mail with Levi Beardsley on it that we decided we had to stick Levi somewhere in there. So Marcus is Marcus Levi Beardsley. That's not a real meaningful reason for the name Levi. Most of our children do not have anything majorly meaningful. But in the Hebrew custom, the name meant the identity. How you were named was everything. And so to have that name ripped from you and taken from you was not just a renaming. It was a destruction of your very identity, your purpose in life. Everything was being destroyed. But in verse 8, Daniel tells us something. He says, Daniel determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. And so he asked the chief of staff, which would be Ashpenaz, 
for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. And you can understand why they were unacceptable. It was not just that it was coming from the king's table, but the pagans of the world, the non-Jews of the world, they ate things that Jews didn't eat. Daniel couldn't control what name he had. He couldn't control that he had been ripped from his home. He couldn't control that he was no longer really a man. He couldn't control all of that. But he staked his claim, despite the fact that his God had turned his back upon his people, despite the fact that what he was going through was the result of his God's punishment upon him. And we don't know what he thought of all of that and where he had been when Jeremiah prophesied to the people. We just simply don't know. But Daniel said there is one area, there is one thing, I can find one thing in which I am still going to send a signal to my God, I believe you. Now, I want you to notice that this faith was resilient. Verse 9 tells us, Now God had given the chief of staff both respect and affection for Daniel. But the chief of staff, and we miss this point many times. We don't, we don't pick this up, and I, I want you to see this. He responded, I am afraid of my lord the king who has ordered that you eat this food and wine. If you become pale and thin compared to the other youths your age, I am afraid the king will have me beheaded. And we always assume because later Daniel asks, and we miss this point, someone else who concedes to Daniel's request. We miss the point that the chief of staff turned him down. This was not just simply an expression of reticence, an expression of fear or concern. The chief of staff said, I'm sorry, Daniel, as much as I respect you, as much as I have honor for you, as much as I recognize your aptitude, no. You must eat this food. But verse 11 shows us the resilience of Daniel's faith. Now, where did this resilience come from? His God has turned his back on them. The city has been destroyed. The temple has been destroyed. The holy things of the temple have been taken away to an idolatrous place. His manhood has been removed. He is in the custody of a pagan king. He doesn't even have his own identity. Daniel's faith is resilient. Daniel's faith is such that he doesn't take no for an answer. Daniel may even have been a contributing part of the destruction of Israel. Daniel may have participated in the worship in the groves. Daniel may have come from a family that was not godly. Daniel may have, in fact, not listened to Jeremiah. He might have even jeered at Jeremiah. We just don't know. To assume that he didn't is to assume wrongly. Somewhere through this crisis, Daniel had either recommitted or turned his back and his face toward the Lord God of his people. So he didn't take no for an answer. He turned again to the attendant, the person that Ashpenaz had specifically tasked with carrying out his orders. Remember, he was the chief of staff for Nebuchadnezzar. He had many duties. So verse 11, Daniel spoke with the attendant who had been appointed by the chief of staff to look after Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And he said to him, he says, please test us for 10 days on a diet of vegetables and water. At the end of the 10 days, see how we look. Compare us to the other young men who are eating the king's food. Then make your decision in light of what you see. Put my God to the test. You see, faith is bold. Faith is the evidence of things you can't see. It's the substance, it's the material of things you hope are true. Where did Daniel have confirmation that his God would show up for him? 
Come on now. Look at his circumstances and show me where Daniel had the pieces to have faith. I promise you tonight, I stand in a place much stronger to be able to have faith in my God than Daniel had. Daniel saw the destruction of his city, saw the destruction of his people, saw the emasculation of his own manhood, saw the ripping away of his own identity, saw the domination of his own freedom, all because his God had issued those orders. Who said that God was going to show up? Who said that God was going to do? But see, Daniel had learned something about faith. When you challenge God on his terms, no matter how angry he's been with your past decisions, he is moved by your present faith. Somebody needs to hear me tonight. No matter how wrong you have been in your past decisions, when you challenge God on the terms of his commandments, he can't help himself because he binds himself by his own word. There's a unity there. There's a oneness message there. I won't take the time tonight to preach it, but you understand that his word is not separate from him. John tells us that it is by his word that all things were created. Our created existence is completely in existence and in operation because of the operation of the word of God. So when you challenge God on the terms of his own word, God can't help but respond to the terms of his word. Some of you don't know how to rub two nickels together and still have a dime. But if you will pay your tithes and your offerings, you cannot help but have God respond to the terms of his word. Some of you are coming from backgrounds that are so unstable that you have no idea what it is to be functional. But when you challenge God on the terms of his faithfulness, when you show up to church because he commands us and he instructs us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, God can't help but respond to the terms of his word and stability comes into your life despite all your dysfunctionality. You've heard me say that I grew up in a functional home that was established by two of the most dysfunctional people. How? How can I grow up in a functional home that is established by two dysfunctional people. They did not leave their dysfunction behind. They kept their dysfunction. They were trying to leave it behind, but they haven't left it behind to this day. They carry their baggage. Yes, they're smarter about it. Yes, they're wiser about it. But goodness, they're 73 years old. I'd hope they get a little smarter about it. Why? Because two dysfunctional people who struggled to apply it in their own lives refused to back away from demanding of me according to the principles of the Word of God. And when mom and dad established the Word in our home, God can't help himself but respond to the terms of of his word. Amen? Messed up people that just flat out were bullheaded. The word of God is true. We struggle to live it. We struggle to obey it. We struggle to understand it. But that boy is going to be raised according to it. pretty weird thing when at 14 years of age you find yourself standing 
in your living room trying to help your parents broker a fight. I did it. Don't tell me I didn't because I did. They'd get into it. And boy, they'd struggle. Come on now. Some of you got baggage. Some of you got big baggage. Some of you got multi-generational baggage. I'm here tonight to tell you that God is calling you to a place of faith. Because when you challenge him on the terms of his word, he can't help but respond. Don't tell me all the reasons why you're not sure God's going to respond to it. Your situation is nowhere near as bad as Daniel's. You haven't lost your gender. You haven't lost your identity. You haven't lost your home. You haven't lost your wealth. You haven't lost your position. Everything was gone. Daniel had no promise from God. He had no tongues and interpretation coming out and saying, if you'll submit to me, I will perform miracles in your life. He had no preachers telling him that, hey, God still loves you. God still cares about you. God wants to perform miracles in your life. He had none of that. But he said, I remember from my training, Yahweh told us don't eat that stuff. So, I'm going to challenge Yahweh on the terms of his word. Goes to the chief of staff. Chief of staff says, no way, buddy. Can't do it. Nebuchadnezzar will have my head. So Daniel just says, all right. Goes to the guy that the chief of staff puts in charge. Says, how about you, buddy? See, faith requires some resilience. There's times when we say, well, they said no. Oh, don't cop out now. Don't cop out now. Ask somebody else. Come on, don't cop out now. Go ahead and push again. Don't cop out now. Come on, do it again and again and again. So challenges. For whatever reason, the attendant, neither foolishly or wisely, said, okay, I'll give you 10 days. So for 10 days, he brought them nothing but vegetables and water. Now, everybody wants to go in and talk about the healthiness of vegetarian eating. Let me, let me let you understand something. Let me let you understand something. There are problems with eating only vegetables. There are things you have to do to make sure that you're not missing other vitamins and nutrients. So don't sap the miracle of this moment. There weren't supplements that you could order from the pharmacy. There weren't, there wasn't the knowledge. I don't even know that they were Janet very wise about what they ate as far as the vegetables. They didn't even get to pick the vegetables. It just was whatever he scrounged up in the kitchen and, and brought them. Because the point isn't about a vegetarian diet. Despite if you want to be vegetarian, God bless you, but thank God I don't have to be like you. I like my cow. Give me my meat lest I die. And I got at least one of my kids that's with me. Candace can sit down and eat a full man-sized filet mignon with a baked potato. I know. My girl. It's a sight to behold. And all of you vegetarians that are shuddering, God bless you. You're practicing tolerance right now. Because the Apostle Paul said, if you plan to eat, show respect unto your brother who does not eat. And if you do not eat, show respect unto your brother who does eat. I'll show respect to you. Eat your vegetables. I'm eating my cow. If you come to my house, I won't make you eat my cow. But don't get mad at me if I do. Ten days. Nothing but vegetables, water. 
By the way, I know there's a big thing out there called Daniel's Fast. Daniel's Fast would work for me. I like cow. For all of you that don't like meat, Daniel's Fast is off the table. Because the point of fasting is to do away with something you want. So all of you that just want to be healthy, you got to fast something else. Just for free. That was a little extra. Ten days go by. See, Daniel was not just challenging the attendant. He had no guarantee this was going to work. Because I promise you the Babylonians were picking the foods that they felt would produce the best health in these people. And Daniel was flouting that wisdom. He was challenging his God. He was saying, hey God, you said don't eat this stuff. And I know you destroyed Jerusalem. I know I've lost my manhood. I understand I've lost my name. My family's been destroyed. I understand that everything has been utterly put into chaos. But you said, come on, church. You need to learn how to look at Almighty God when the circumstances look like he's turned his back on you, when you've even done some of the things that have contributed to the circumstances that look like he's turned his back on you. And you need to learn the words, but. You said. Because God responds to the terms of his word. Somebody needs to be excited tonight. I don't care if you express it, but inside of you, you need to be bubbling a little bit. You study that word, you get a hold of that, and then you challenge him. Say, aren't I supposed to be respectful? Let me let you understand something about powerful people. Powerful people like to be challenged. And there's nobody more powerful than my God. He knows you're a peon. He knows that you can't hurt him. But when you have the chutzpah to step up into his space and say, but you said, God gets a grin on his face. My wife, she doesn't understand this at all. I am a big personality. I am somebody that absolutely dominates anything I'm involved with. And it freaks her out. She's like, you're going to hurt me. And she's scared to death. But then when she steps up in my space and I get that grin on my face, she goes, what is wrong with you? She's anticipating that I'm going to just come down on her even harder but then I get that grin on the face and then I go good one if you can get the analogy that's how God responds because remember God loves you that's the deal Reg I love you I love you so when you step into my space when you push back on my power when you lean into me I like it. Even if I don't like what you're saying to me, even if I got to change what I'm doing, I like it because I like you to step into my space because I'm okay with me. God's okay with him. God was not offended when he said, get out of the way, Moses. I'm going to destroy the people. And Moses stepped into his space and says, now, God, you're not thinking. What are the Egyptians going to say when you brought these people out into the wilderness and then you just destroyed them? God, you're not thinking straight. What did God do? He didn't destroy the people. I just somehow, forgive me because I can't prove it to you, but I just somehow think God kind of got a sly little grin on his face. I just kind of sense that God kind of chuckled and said, Yeah, all right. Daniel did that. He had no basis to do it except faith. Everything of his circumstances says, this won't work. But Daniel said, okay, God, time to put up or shut up. Here's the terms of your word. You said not to eat this stuff, so I'm not eating it. 
do something. I promise you, every one of you, because of your personality, you're going, I can't do that to God. Yes, you can. When you exercise faith, you can. It don't have to sound like me. It don't have to look like me. But I promise you, you can step into God's face and say, hey, God, I blew it. Hey, God, I didn't listen to Jeremiah. Hey, God, I've lost my manhood or my womanhood. I got no identity. I'm discombobulated. I'm in a land that I am utterly depressed by. But, hey, God, your word says this. So what you going to do when I obey you? What are you going to do when you challenge God with your faith? He's going to respond to the terms of his word. Verse 16, so after that, the attendant fed them only vegetables instead of food and wine provided for the others. Verse 17, for all of you that say it's because of the vegetarian diet, wrong. God gave these four young men an unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom. And God gave Daniel the special ability to interpret the meanings of of visions and dreams. When the training period ordered by the king was completed, the chief of staff brought all the young men to King Nebuchadnezzar. Chief of staff, remember, has no clue that it's happened. It's the first review. It's the, here's the guys, and here's what we've been doing with them for the last week and a half. The king talked with them. And no one impressed him as much as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the royal service. Whenever the king consulted them in any manner requiring wisdom and balanced judgment, he found them ten times more capable than any of the magicians and enchanters in his entire kingdom. Don't tell me that when you have faith in God, you live a second-class life. Sorry. Been there. Done that. Got the t-shirt. You're wrong. You will live a second-class life when you don't dig down into that measure of faith that has been given to every single human being and challenge God on the terms of his word. Say, yeah, but preacher, you came from a functional home that was established by two dysfunctional people. Can I tell you that despite their dysfunctionality, God blessed their lives? I promise you, my mama wasn't equipped to be the lady that this church has had for 34 years. She was not equipped to be all that she has been from that little town of Grantsville, Maryland. Grantsville still only has one blinker light. And it's at the highway nowhere else in town. Nothing to talk about. You've heard my dad talk about. And he was an aggressive, out-to-prove-himself man. Talk about he had a complete career plotted. Everything he wanted to achieve within his career. He was on course at the seven-year mark. He was right on target. Everything was moving the way it was supposed to do. In the next seven years, the rest of his entire career, God handed to him. He was messed up. Some of it his doing, and a whole lot of it not. Church, faith in a God who is bound by the terms of his word, is a powerful thing. 
it is more powerful than your hang-ups. It is more powerful than your fallibility. It is more powerful than your spouse. It is more powerful than your children. It is more powerful than your boss. It is more powerful than the failings of the church. It is more powerful than the circumstances of the world. It is more powerful than anything. And Daniel, I don't know why he did it. I don't know how he did it. I don't know how he mustered it, but Daniel challenged God. And God responded to the terms of his word. Final verse of chapter 1, verse 21. Daniel remained in the royal service until the first year of the reign of King Cyrus. God literally established him to outlast every remaining king of the empire of the Babylonians and to proceed past multiple kings of the Medes and the Persians until the great King Cyrus. Yeah, he was a eunuch, probably. Yeah, he lost his identity. No, to my knowledge, he never saw Jerusalem again. Nope. He wasn't royalty, wasn't nobility. Yeah, he served in the king's service. But God never failed him, even when he failed God. God never failed him, even when he failed God. Faith. You see, I remember this one little verse comes a few verses after the one I've quoted to you from Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Without faith, you can't please God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Not perfectly seeking, diligently seeking. So here we are, church. So you got some circumstances that aren't optimal. Some of them have to do with your own choices. Some of them have to do with choices of other people that you can't control. So the devil's opposing us. So the devil's weighing us down. I don't know about you, but I had, and I ain't cussing when I say this, I had a week from hell. I should have known it was coming. Don't get to call the devil out like I did last Sunday night and not have him come after me. Hope some of you had a good week. Hope some of you were encouraged. I got blistered. I didn't fail. I don't even think I sinned. But boy, he decked me. He's trying to deck me right now. But I serve a God who even when I'm emasculated, lost my identity, don't have my home, lost my position and my rank and my status, and I'm under domination. All I got to do is challenge him on the terms of his word. And Daniel's story tells me God going to show up. God's going to perform miracles. God likes it when I step into his space and say, okay. Now, I'm not here to tell you that you don't need to fix the things that you're doing wrong. I'm not here to tell you you don't have to take responsibility for all of that. I'm not telling you all that. But even when you do that, there is still a mess. Can I get an amen? Come on now. We've been making messes for a long time. We've been making messes of our marriages. We've been making messes of our relationships. We've been just having problems. Can somebody here be honest with me and say, yeah, preacher, I know what you're talking about. I'm in that camp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on now. We don't need to be holier now. We don't need to be up on pillars. None of us live on pillars. Even in the midst of a situation 
in which there is absolutely no reason to have faith. I challenge you tonight. Take Daniel's cue. Go ahead and challenge God anyway. I got to be honest with you. If I was Daniel, I still wouldn't be very happy that I'd lost my manhood. Take my name before you take my manhood. I like being a man. I still wouldn't be real happy that I'd never see Jerusalem again. Wouldn't be real happy that I'd lost my name, my identity, my rank, my station. Wouldn't be real happy that I was serving this pagan king called Nebuchadnezzar at his beck and call. But if that's where I'm at, if that's the circumstances, I promise you, serving him with Yahweh's backing is a whole lot better than serving him without Yahweh's backing. Some of you got to get your eyes off the circumstances and say, okay, I might not have been doing what I was supposed to do in the past. I might be sitting in some circumstances that weren't optimal. But I'll tell you what, I'm going to go ahead and live where I'm at with Yahweh's backing rather than live where I'm at with Yahweh not behind me. I'll go ahead and exercise some faith and say, God, do a miracle in my life, not just to take my circumstances away, but to make me more than a conqueror through him who loves us. I don't like what my circumstances are. Some of them aren't my fault. Some of them are, but oh, baby, I am going to do it with God's help, not alone. Because I can tell you the story of Daniel tells us some pretty amazing. So amazing, it's one of the cardinal few that every children every child in Sunday school learns they know about Noah's Ark they know about David and Goliath but they also know about the three Hebrew children and the fiery furnace and they know about Daniel and the lion's den so Faith or mully grubbing? What you going to do? Faith or mully grubbing? Does everybody understand mully grubbing? Pity party? My sister gave us a great quote. I can't remember how it goes. But if you're going to sit on the pity pot, was that it? Go ahead and do your business. Just make sure you flush when you're done. We must share the same genes. We embarrass our father. But we take pleasure in the frankness of some of those things. I know you do and I know I do too. And he gets all red and embarrassed about it. But it's, it's cool. It's fun. Because it gets to the heart of the matter. Pity pot or faith? I promise you, you don't have the need for a pity pot like Daniel did. Manhood gone, identity gone, rank and status gone, temple destroyed, city destroyed, serving a king for the rest of your blooming life. He had one big pity pot. But he made a choice. Challenged on the basis of faith, God, in the terms of his word. Some of you, your lives are so disorganized. I don't know why you're not asking me for a key to come here and pray extra. Let alone... 
thinking you can get by with only two services a week or three services a week and not come to potlucks or not come. Man, I'm telling you, I, I need some faith here, folks. Some of you, your finances are in such disarray. Man, you need to be turning more and more and more of your finances over to God. By the way, everything's paid up. Air conditioning worked great. Nothing's broken. No, oh, this isn't about us. No, no, no. I will never, hear me, never. I will never lead this congregation into a place where that happens. Your giving is about you and your God. It's about you challenging your God. Some of you I know because I'm pastoring you. I'm watching you. I'm watching the looks. I don't know how you skip family weekends. I don't have a clue. I know. Oh, my. I was doing good until now. Now I'm meddling. I don't know how you're missing these. Probably because you're looking at your circumstances. Pity pot or faith. How much faith does it take? Not much. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. I choose faith. So Daniel at the king's table stands as a great example that when all the circumstances are against you, some of your own doing perhaps and many not, will you challenge your God on the terms of his word? Faith. Let's stand. Hallelujah, Jesus. God, I worship.